in an experiment. Yeah, we didn't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, we're looking at squishy sea creatures and the evolutionary forces acting on words. Plus the ambitious project that's sequencing the Earth's microbiome. This is the Nature Podcast for November the 2nd, 2017. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up, we've taken a tip from Nature's Books and Arts section about two new books on ocean invertebrates. One about jellyfish by science writer Julie Burwald and one about cephalopods by marine scientist Dana Staff. Invertebrate researcher Lisa Gershwin has reviewed the books, so our reporter Jeff Marsh gave her a call. Now, on the face of it, jellies and cephalopods are very different animals, aren't they? Jellies lacking kind of a heart, blood, brain, nonchalantly floating their way through evolution. And then we've got the highly intelligent cephalopods. They seem like such different animals, but you love them both. You're right. They couldn't be farther apart. The jellies, as I'm so fond of saying, are spineless and brainless with no visible means of support. And, you know, the cephalopods, on the other hand, they're they're like little Houdinis. They're fast and they're fearsome predators. Completely different. Let's tackle the jellyfish first then. And if I were to play extreme devil's advocate, I might say to you that jellyfish are perhaps the most boring animal evolution has ever given us. Aw, that's unfair. (laughs) Tell me why it's unfair. Well, they're not boring at all. I mean, for one thing, being these incredibly primitive creatures, they've been around for at least a half a billion years, and they haven't changed a bit. They are the master survivors. What's their secret then behind their sort of evolutionary staying power? You know, they can clone in 13 different ways. So cloning itself is cool, but they can clone in 13 different ways. They can grow really fast and opportunistically when conditions change favorably for them. They can degrow uh, when there's no food available. They don't need to see to eat. They just use tactile feel to find food. Several species are truly biologically immortal. Lisa, I take it back. You're, you're slowly convincing me. <laughs> you mentioned there that, you know, they don't they don't need vision to see, but I have actually heard about one type of jellyfish that has kind of remarkable vision. The box jellies are the ones that really fascinate me. They've got 24 eyes. Eight of these eyes have lenses and retinas and corneas, just like our eyes. And they can see Like we see, they can actually see, except they don't have a brain to interpret what they're seeing. I don't know, that kind of makes me just, you know, like my head just goes... (laughs) And not only do they have this remarkable vision, but it might be the only, I suppose because of their radial symmetry, it might be the only example of sort of 360 degree vision that we see in the animal kingdom. Oh yeah, but it's even cooler than that. It's like the inverse of 360 degrees. So the eyes on the left side are actually seeing past the right side to see what's over there. (laughs) 
we could talk forever about jellyfish, but I guess we've also got to talk about um, cephalopods as well, because that's what the other book's about. These must be YouTube's most famous invertebrate group. Everyone's seen these mimic octopuses and giant squid and colour-switching cuttlefish. Some of the most fantastic ones I've ever seen are in uh, what's called the midwater, which is way, way out and way, way down. So it's definitely the domain of the squids, no question about that. One of them that's my favourite is um, one called... Called, uh, histiatuthis and it's got these spots all over it when you see it one of the eyes faces up and catches the downwelling light and the other eye faces down and then they can mimic the light those spots are actually photophores they're light organs so a photophore as opposed to a chromatophore this is actually emits light that's exactly right so in shallow water um, cephalopods use the chromatophores to mimic the colors that they're on so that they go invisible. But in the deep sea, there is no color. It's just the faintest twilight sort of light. I've often thought that evolution dealt the cephalopods a bit of a tough hand by making them so delicious. Uh, do humans pose a serious threat to cephalopods um, to the same extent as we do to like slow growing fish like cod and whatnot? Well, that's a really interesting question. I mean, in on the one hand, you know, we are certainly harvesting a lot of cephalopods. But on the other hand, they're growing so fast. And when you look at some of these um, disturbed areas around the world, what we're seeing is jellyfish and cephalopods doing really, really well in these disturbed systems, while fish and, of course, marine mammals and seabirds and, you know, things like that aren't doing so well. And so the community in these disturbed areas are changing and becoming less crunchy and fishy and more squishy and chewy. What do we know about the the evolution of, of, of jellyfish and cephalopods? Because I imagine that they're kind of hidden from the fossil record owing to their fleshy reluctance to fossilise. They actually do fossilise and some of the fossils are just splendid. Um, they leave a footprint rather than a chunky thing, but they can be just amazingly detailed. Okay, so finally then, I'm sure you've piqued a lot of people's interest in these fantastic invertebrates. Would you recommend these books? Look, I really love these books. I really think anybody who loves invertebrates, anybody who loves fossils, anybody who loves a good nature story is going to love these books. That was marine biologist Lisa Gershwin there, who's based in Tasmania, Australia. And if the two books discussed here don't satisfy your appetite, Lisa has published a couple of her own on jellyfish, which you can find links to on her website. Still to come in the highlights, targeting malaria proteins and the evolution of the wild horse. Now, though, in 2010, a group of researchers set out on an ambitious endeavour. Their goal, to understand microbial life on our planet. Now, seven years later, the first phase of this Earth Microbiome project is being published and it catalogues tens of thousands of samples. I called up Janet Jansen, one of the researchers who coordinated the study, to find out exactly what the Earth Microbiome Project was setting out to do. We live on a microbial planet, basically. So there are microorganisms in every single habitat on Earth, including soil, water, and our own bodies. So this, this we already knew. The, the challenge was we didn't know 
who they were for the majority anyhow, or what they were doing. So back in 2010, when this project was conceived, you knew you had the sequencing technology to sequence samples from all around the world. But I suppose, how do you get samples from all around the world in the first place? That's the hardest part, is to get the samples from from different countries. It, It turned out at the end of this particular study, we had over 300 researchers involved from 43 different countries, over 27,000 environmental samples. And the, the only way that that was possible was by crowdsourcing. We would solicit samples from different scientists that, were, that had interesting projects that were sampling different areas around, around the globe. And there were three of you kind of coordinating these efforts, and each of you was in charge of sort of a different category of samples. Rob mainly got human samples and samples from different kinds of animals, everything from ants to iguanas. And Jack Gilbert, he mainly got the samples from aquatic environments, and this included lakes and ocean samples. I mainly got samples from soil, and that included everything from soil from deserts and permafrost in Alaska So in that way, we were able to really get quite a unique and very interesting collection of samples. What's having this catalogue actually useful for in terms of research? The thing that's that's very useful about this particular catalogue is that because all of the samples were processed in a standardised way, they are comparable across sample types. And that allows you to answer fundamental questions, such as what is the composition and distribution of life on Earth? And are there global patterns of microbial diversity? Uh, Without having that standardized approach, the way that it was done previously, it wasn't possible to compare between different studies. How representative do you think the sample you've got is of the the level of variety we see on our planet. So we this is only a subsample, of course, of all of the microbial habitats that there are on our planet. And what we really aimed to do was to get a broad geographic distribution of sample types that we could be able to see, you know, if there was some pattern that emerged. But we are just scratching the surface. Where will this project go? Is there a way it could be completed? Is there a point when you can say, right, we're done, we've sequenced the earth? Or does it just keep going and going? So one thing that we're finding is that for some kinds of samples, for example, the, the human the human gut, with the accumulated sequences, it starts to level off. So that might indicate that, okay, we probably have a good enough idea if you contrast that to something like soil or sediment, there is still just, there's no leveling off at all. So every new sequence data set provides new sequence information. So that indicates that the amount of diversity in those kind of habitats is just, it's, it's enormous. And so to your question, when will we accomplish the feat of of understanding all of the diversity in those kinds of samples. I I wouldn't say it wouldn't be possible, but it's going to be still a big challenge for many years. It seems like you've got a lot of work left to do then. Do you find that daunting? I find it incredibly fascinating. 
it is it is daunting, but I've been working as a microbial ecologist for about 30 years, and it's so gratifying to finally be at the stage where we're getting some answers to these questions that were not possible to achieve 10 years ago. That was Janet Jansen, who's based at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory in Washington State, USA. To find out more about the Earth Microbiome Project, the paper, plus news and views, are available on nature.com forward slash nature. The news chat is still to come, and we'll be taking a look at evolution's role in mental illness. Now, though, it's time for two quick hits of new research, as Shamini Bundell brings us this week's research highlights. The deadliest form of malaria, Plasmodium falciparum, could be stopped in its tracks by multitasking medication. In Southeast Asia, the pernicious parasite has already developed resistance to one of the top anti-malarial drugs. But researchers have now pinpointed a protein that helps the parasite infect red blood cells, and another one that helps it spread. A separate team have found a group of enzymes that targets both of these proteins. In mice with a malaria-like disease, the compound cleared the infection in two weeks and stopped it spreading. That pair of papers can be found in Science. Prehistoric horses may have galloped off the plains for a sheltered life in the forests. A team analysed DNA from the ancient wild horses that hoofed around Europe thousands of years ago. The genes reveal that, over a 12,000-year period, the main coat colour changed from a bright reddish-brown to black. A model of ancient equine habitats suggests that the feral horses left the plains and headed into the forests, where dark coats would have helped them hide among the trees. These woodland wanderers survived in Europe and Asia until the 1900s and seemed to have evaded the mass extinction that wiped out their cousins cantering across America's open plains. Trot over to Nature, Ecology and Evolution for more. Language changes all the time, and words are always coming in or going out of fashion. But they don't just appear or disappear, they also evolve. A new paper in Nature is looking at how verb endings change using evolutionary biology methods. To find out more about the processes involved, the researchers from the University of Pennsylvania behind the work needed to study an enormous amount of text. I asked Mitchell Newbury, the lead author in the paper, where they got hold of such a large body of work, also known as a corpus. One of the corpora that we use is the Corpus of Historical American English, which involves 200 years of magazine articles, news articles, books, that is curated to represent the speech that was used at a given time. The Corpus of Historical American English contains over 4 million words from over 100,000 books. These words are helpfully tagged to identify different parts of speech, verbs, nouns, adjectives, and so on. The team focused on past tense verbs and how their usage has changed over the years. So we isolated instances where both a regular and an irregular form of a past tense verb were sort of circulating in the population, so to speak. Now we call these polymorphic verbs because there are multiple forms available for speakers to learn. Polymorphic verbs include words like burn. Burn's past tense could be burnt or it could be burned. And the same with learn which becomes either learnt or learned. Mitchell and his colleagues studied 36 of these verbs to see how their usage evolved over time. Now, theory suggests that in general, verbs become more regular. In other words, it becomes more likely that they'll end up with a typical ED ending for the past tense. Ben walked into the studio is one such example. 
But Mitchell and his colleagues found four examples of verbs with selection pressure towards the irregular, and in one case at least, have put forward a reason why. One example where we might have an explanation is the word dived and dove. Now, dived is the ancestral form, and it has been recently irregularizing to dove in America. And one conjecture that might explain that is the increase of the irregular verb drive and drove. Now, drive and drove is always irregular. No one says drived. And that word has been increasing in frequency, uh, perhaps because of the invention of cars. But we think that maybe an increasing use in drove makes the rhyming of dive and dove feel normal to speakers. And given the option of saying dove and dived when dove is acceptable, speakers might prefer to say dove. So in this instance, the tendency to rhyme has resulted in the selection of dove. Selective pressure is a big driver for evolution, but what about its cousin, genetic drift? Unlike natural selection's survival of the fittest, genetic drift describes random changes that don't result in an organism becoming fitter. Drift is apparent for words too, and here's an example. Take two sets of parents, one who use spilt, while the other use spilled. If the spilt parents have one child, but the spilled parents have two, and these offspring learn the words from their parents, spilled has become more common in the population, even though neither word is fitter. The team behind this work showed that drift is stronger for rare verbs and that the strength of that drift depends on the frequency that the word is used. So the more that a verb is uttered, the more its past tense stays the same in future generations. Repetition is key, and this repetition keeps regular verbs regular and irregular verbs irregular. But what does this all mean for the words we use today? Mitchell explains that understanding how words are evolving might give us a clue to the pace of their change. I think where we find selection, we expect uh, one form to eventually replace the other. It depends on the magnitudes of selection and drift. Under strong selection, a, a verb might change quite rapidly over the course of uh, 100 years. Under drift, it might take much longer for one form to replace another, just because people eventually forget one or the other forms. That was Mitchell Newbury, the first author of Detecting Evolutionary Forces in Language Change, which you can find on nature.com forward slash nature. Time now for this week's news chat and biomedical and policy reporter Sarah Reardon joins us on the line from Washington, D.C. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Adam. Now, first up, you've written a story about the evolution of mental illness. Now, this is something I hadn't really thought that much about before. Why is it a difficult topic for researchers to grapple with? Well, mental illness in general is a difficult topic, trying to figure out the genetics um, that underlie it, because there are so many interacting genetic and environmental influences that lead to things like depression and autism and schizophrenia. And it's very hard to tease those apart. And even if you just look at the genetics, there are hundreds or thousands of either genes or other little points in people's genomes that differ that might contribute a little bit. So if you are trying to look at the evolution of that, instead of just being able to track like one gene for some trait that differs from our ancestors, you're going to be looking at hundreds of thousands of places. So you really have to have massive, massive numbers of genomes in a database to really even be able to start looking at how these could have shown up. 
And this new work that's been going on looking into uh, the origins of mental illness, how, how have they been approaching the problem and, and what have they uncovered? So one of the studies I saw it t- took hundreds of thousands of genomes that are all in this big database. And she used a new statistical method that lets people look for very recent changes in uh, the genome over the, like the last 2,000 years. And and so what she found was that various brain regions have evolved over time, seeming to become smarter, and also that there was some selection, though not very strong selection, for genes and gene variants that might be protecting us against schizophrenia. And that's really interesting because there's been work before that has proposed that schizophrenia in particular is tied to the evolution of language. Um, People who have schizophrenia have uh, hear voices, auditory hallucination, and and also have jumbled speech patterns. It goes back to that theory that once we started developing language and all of these very, very complex genetic and um, brain traits that anything that goes wrong would manifest itself as something that we recognize as a mental illness. Do we have a good understanding of just how much these uh, genetic factors play into uh, mental illness in the first place, kind of what influence they have compared to, say, environmental factors? It depends on the particular um, mental illness. And there have been some some genes that have been uh, pretty strongly linked to um, things like schizophrenia or autism in particular. Um, but it's, it's all just very hard to tease apart. And the only way people are really going to be able to get to it is through these big massive databases um, where they are actually able to have people's genomes along with a lot of other information about their medical history and environmental exposures, uh, family history, things like that. Let's move on to our, our second story. And it's now six months since the March for Science in Washington, D.C. Now, now, what was the March for Science all about in case people have forgotten? Well, it depends on who you speak with. Um, they, the March for Science itself, I'd like to say that it was not politically motivated necessarily. They were marching in support of science, which they feel is not valued in American society the way that it should be. There are also many people who've interpreted it as a march against President Trump and uh, the people in Congress right now who are have been taking actions and talking um, in ways that suggest that they don't think science is important. The Trump administration proposed huge, huge cuts to um, government agencies, including the NIH, which historically presidents have really loved our biomedical research enterprise, and Trump proposed huge cuts to that. So a lot of scientists and people who support science and think science is important came out in mass. But now, half a year on from the march, uh, the, the management of the March for Science... Uh, facing complaints from uh, from volunteers who were involved? Yeah, so, so this is um, something that's come up in the last couple of weeks here. Some of the people who were initially involved in organizing it have written a letter protesting that there's been a lack of transparency among um, some of the organizers and people who took over the um, just kind of management of the March for Science and the continuing organization that it's trying to be. And so... When you have a new organization, it's going to need directors, management, and they hired people allegedly without conducting an actual search. They just kind of started paying someone to be their director. They made payments to other people who were theoretically volunteers. Um, they had 
some of their initial organizers uh, sign non-disclosure agreements so that we don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. People are saying, well, they were being so secretive here, and that makes it really difficult for uh, minority groups and women and historically marginalized um, populations to really have their uh, voices heard. Are any groups actually distancing themselves or even kind of leaving the organization? Um, well, at least uh, the New York group, the satellite march that happened in New York City, they've decided they don't want to be involved with kind of the politics of the central March for Science group in D.C., and so they've been trying to distance themselves. Um, the initial three organizers who came up with the idea have also resigned from the board, but they've all signed non-disclosure agreements. So they can't really say a whole lot about what's been going on from their perspective. What's been the response from the from the management now then, from the from the interim director? Um, well, I think that they think these accusations are unfair, that, um, that people should recognize that any new organization has to go through certain kind of growing pains, so to speak, and that there's a level of management that has to be in place. People have been spending their time and their effort, and there's a lot of work that goes into putting something like this together. And um, yeah, they, they feel like there should be the ability to be compensated for that. Thanks for the update, Sarah. For all the latest science news, head on over to nature.com forward slash news. So that's it for this week. But if you haven't heard enough of us just yet, make sure to follow us on Twitter. I'm Jacques Hughes, J-A-C-Q-U-E-S-H-U-G-H-E-S. And you can find my stream of consciousness at Climate Adam. No spelling necessary. Or follow the podcast at Nature Podcast. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. See you all next time. One in two women wear the wrong foundation. Are you? Time to upgrade. Il Maquillage is the boldest new brand in beauty. With 20,000 five-star reviews, their Woke Up Like This foundation is a bestseller for a reason. Available in 50 shades of flawless natural coverage, all cruelty-free. And with Try Before You Buy, it's risk-free. Take the Power Match quiz to find your perfect shade and try it free for 14 days. Go to ilmakiage.com quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz.